morning and welcome to Rising. As you can see, our setup is a little different today with Robbie coming in remotely. But of course, we're back to bring you the day's news. Hey, Robbie, how are you doing? Hi, Brianna. Thanks for holding down the fort uh, in the studio. I'm at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, to do a debate about tech regulations. Um, I will be back uh, tomorrow, but um, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for managing uh, this setup. I know it's not ideal, but we're going to do our best. I struggle to do it, but I'm happy to share you with the world, Robbie. I cannot be greedy here. <laughs> um, well. <laughs> Let's get right into the day's events. Obviously, we're continuing coverage of events in Israel-Palestine. Airstrikes continue to bombard the Gaza Strip after Israeli forces confirmed today that over 300 Hamas targets have been destroyed. IDF forces confirmed to U.S. media that they're ready and waiting for the go-ahead to start a ground invasion of Gaza. However, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu has yet to give that go-ahead. The Biden administration is privately urging Israel to hold off on such a course of action until, until more progress is made on the release of hostages held by Hamas. Per the Palestinian Ministry of Health, over 5,000 Gazans have been killed by airstrikes in the last two weeks alone. As noted by journalists, that's 20 times the amount of Ukrainian citizens killed by Russia in the last seven months of war. In a tweet over the weekend, President Biden again reaffirmed the United States' support of Israel's, quote, right to defend itself. However, he added, quote, Prime Minister Netanyahu and I have discussed how Israel must operate by the laws of war. That means protecting civilians in combat as best they can. We can't ignore the humanity of innocent Palestinians who only want to live in peace. Secretary of State Antony Blinken confirmed during a Meet the Press appearance yesterday that U.S. forces are prepared to retaliate should more Americans be harmed in the region. Let's watch. We are concerned. Uh, in fact, we expect uh, that there's a likelihood of escalation, escalation by Iranian proxies directed against our forces, directed against our personnel. Uh, we are taking steps to make sure that we can effectively defend our people and respond decisively if we need to. This is not what we want, not what we're looking for. We don't want escalation. Is, we is, don't want to see a second or third front develop. Uh, we don't want to see our forces or our personnel come under fire. But uh, if that happens, we're ready for it. Per United Nations officials, 20 trucks worth of humanitarian aid has been permitted to enter Gaza by the IDF. However, they say it's not nearly enough. Just yesterday, the Indian government announced delivery of new aid package to the Gaza Strip, and that aid does include more than six metric tons of medical equipment, such as medicine, uh, surgical items, and also water purification uh, tablets. So obviously, I think we're in a very um, important moment in this ongoing crisis where the next stage could be um, a greater, uh, broader war effort between Israel and various um, adversarial forces that we, that the U.S. could end up involved in. And I think it's good to hear Blinken and Biden, um, you know, indicating that that is not what the U.S. aim is to become drawn into an ever broader conflict. Um, I think that requires probably uh, not not just you know saying kind of, yeah, it would be a big regret if we ended up being, you know, having World War III over this, but actual conscious action to um, hold Israel accountable to make sure the response that they're engaged in is narrowly targeted at actual neutralizing um, Hamas, not starting a, you know, a broader war against the Muslim world, which, which we are not, you know, if, and if they were going to do that, then the U.S. has to be prepared to say, 
where you don't you don't have our support in that the American people do not want a greater U.S. war in the Middle East. We're tired of it. We know the previous efforts failed catastrophically, that they did not make the U.S. safer, that they were wasteful, and they, there was a lot of unnecessary deaths on all sides of those conflicts. I think that's very clearly where the American people are at, and maybe Biden understands this. What, what do you think? Well, I think the problem is that the majority of American people want a ceasefire, and that seems to be reflected not only in polls, but in the protest over the weekend in which thousands and thousands in cities both across America and across the world joined in solidarity with uh, pro-Palestinian uh, interest in calling for specifically a ceasefire. Now, repeatedly, uh, the Biden administration and through our proxies in the United Nations, the United States, have clearly dismissed that possibility, as we covered last week. Uh, America vetoed a U.N. resolution that would call for exactly that. The arguments tend to be that a ceasefire conflicts with this idea that Israel can defend itself. But, of course, there is a conflict between an unlimited and uncaveated right to de defend oneself and this new messaging coming out of the White House that says, well, of course, we have to look after the interest of Palestinian lives lost. I think that there is a lot of pressure on the White House right now, not just because of the protests, but because the IDF has now killed the family members of a former uh, Palestinian member of Congress, Justin Amash. That was a huge news story over the weekend. And it is very difficult to ignore the incredible loss of civilian life that's happened. We mentioned 5,000 civilians and how many more people that is that killed in the last two weeks than have been killed in months and months of war in Ukraine. But 1,700 of those people are children. So at what point does it become? I think this is the central question that journalists are asking. When does it become no longer defense, self-defense? Some people don't think it was defense in the first instance because they think of it as um, Palestinians' efforts to end their ongoing occupation. And at what point does it become uh, a kind of uh, killing of civilians that is very untethered to killing Hamas targets, as the IDF is characterizing it, and which is a violation on top of violation of humanitarian law. Yeah, the news that uh, former Representative Amash shared over the weekend was uh, was was devastating. Obviously, Justin Amash is someone um, who is closely aligned with myself. Frankly, he's a libertarian. Uh, he was elected as a Republican and then later left and joined the Libertarian Party. Um, so, you know, th this again, this is someone who. Um, has, uh, you know, essentially, I think, non-interventionist views on a lot of subjects and, you know, supports less uh, U.S. military intervention in, in general, less um, tax dollars being spent for that purposes, but, it, you know, is not, I would say, you know, is not like from an, the Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib wing of anything, right? He was he was Republican, and um, and his family members were, were, were killed as a result of the actions um, Israel is taking. You know, I don't know what his... I don't know that he shared his um, his uh, views on on this conflict more broadly than that, and obviously I can't speak from him. Although we we love um, to have him back on the show to address these issues, but um, you know I, I just think about the 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 resentments, the, the grievances that will be created among the people of both sides of this conflict going forward as a result of what's happening um, now. I mean that this is how you get into again on both sides. Years from now, you will have people who are who are orphaned because of what happened, and who who lost family members, who fall into support for greater extremism and violence in a retaliatory um, way. And this is how 
you get into a place where this conflict can never end and and people people hating each other forever and um it's it's really on us it's on the u.s government if we're going to continue to fund this which i don't think we should to urge um exactly what um biden says he he is urging that it, it should not you know develop into a broader conflict and i you know i am someone who's in the camp of thinking that um, I don't like the specific phrase, Israel has a right to defend itself, because Israel is a state. I would rather say that Israelis have the right to defend themselves against what, what is, to my mind, not whatsoever legitimate um, revolutionary acts, the, the murdering and kidnapping of civilians, which is what Hamas is doing. Um, obviously, there was going to be a response to that from Israel that's just kind of like, like even if you don't like it, it, ju it just is reality that, that a that a government on behalf of people, whether it's Israel or the U.S. or any other government, is going to respond to a terrorist attack with some kind of action. Um, what matters now is what is the extent of that action, and does it bring that that re this region and the world closer to um, to a to to peace or closer to war? Yeah, I mean, the news that Israel was calling up over 300,000 reservists uh, to fight has only exacerbated the frustrations of Israelis who are the ones that are, are being tasked with perhaps potentially going into a ground invasion in northern uh, Gaza. So to really be clear about what's happened here, uh, a one million half the population of Gaza is now internally displaced, which in and of itself is an enormous problem. Uh, a, a huge percentage, I think 20 percent was it? I don't want to misstate. But of all the housing in Gaza has now been destroyed. So even if the fighting were over tomorrow, the humanitarian implications of what's going on in Gaza are difficult to wrap one's head around. Biden, um, there was news last week that I believe we covered that, partly, again, because of so much public pressure about the humanitarian crisis, Biden was working to uh, get these uh, 28 trucks in uh, into uh, Gaza. But as many have noted, that is a number dwarfed by the average municipality of having grocery trucks come in on your average Monday to restock the stores. We're talking about a population of 2 million people who has experienced having water, uh, shut uh, sh shutoffs, um, electricity shutoffs, and no food coming in for two weeks, besides which they were under a blockade long before the events of October 7th, because, as we've discussed at length, this is a population that's been kept under apartheid conditions and occupied territory. And that has been described as an open-air prison by David Cameron and others, people who are not exactly uh, bleeding-heart lefties here. So this is, this is the, uh, a little bit too little too late in the eyes of a lot of people. And fundamentally, uh, people have drawn um, con uh, comparisons between former president's willingness to exert its influence, the influence of the United States of America, especially given that our finger is on the aid button to uh, Israel, to affect how they respond to moments like this. And the historical precedent is that Reagan has, was at one time much more forceful in calling up Israel and saying, you have to stop the attacks, and it was listened to. And given that's the case, people are looking to Biden's actions here, kind of putting out there to the media that behind the scenes I'm working to create some moderation coming out of Israel, asking Netanyahu to act with some restraint. 
Um, but is that just a ruse? People are concerned that if you're just putting out there that, of course, you're working with Netanyahu, but you're not demonstrating the ability to actually control outcomes the way the former presidents have, are you trying to save face and manage the fact that so many in the American population are unhappy with this escalation and unhappy what appears increasingly to be a really disproportionate response, an extremely overly disproportionate response if you compare the 1,300 who were tragically killed on October 7th and the 5,000 who have now been killed. More ki children have been killed overall by the IDF than individuals, period, were killed on October 7th. If you're not stopping this at a certain point, is it because you're tacitly endorsing it behind the scenes? And I do think that pressure from American voters in an election year, specifically Muslim voters, who there's been a lot of reporting over the weekend, are over, are done. Um, and places like Michigan that have a huge Muslim voting population that Biden relied upon to win. Uh, you know, is, is, if that isn't enough to make Joe Biden want to really definitively force a ceasefire, if the U.N. is still—if America via the U.N. is still vetoing a ceasefire, then how credible uh, is Biden's um, messaging that I'm trying to work behind the scenes? I think that's going to be an, on an ongoing question. And I, I wonder if the average American sees some incoherence in, you know, sending tons of military aid and support to a country, which then uses that military aid to, you know, level buildings, <laughs> to destroy an area, um, cause unfortunately a lot of unintended deaths, and then we end up. So then we have to send aid into the situation. It's like, like we blew up a bridge, and now we're going to pay to rebuild mm -hmm. the bridge. Again, this is all elsewhere. This isn't money being spent at home. This is all for the care and maintenance of the diplomatic realities of other countries. And I, I think that has to be very frustrating to um, to a lot of people. You know, I don't know if it's, I, I certainly understand that there's a left community, there's a Muslim community that, you know, wants a complete ceasefire and is, I, I, I don't know if their level of, um, support for the Palestinian cause is a majority position, you know, among the American people going back to that poll on where your sympathies lie. So I don't know it's so much, you know, deciding that you think the, you know, that the the deaths on the Palestinian side as a result of the um, what the IDF is doing to take out Hamas is like equal or worse in terms of moral blame because they're trying, I mean, the hostages are still being held, right? So they're still going after Hamas. So I don't but know that that's, that's part the of question the issue. for American people. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, but I, 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 again, I, I do think the, the question of having to fund both the destruction and then the cleanup for every other nation is something that will get to a lot of Americans, irrespective of their position on this conflict. Well, it was reported out um, a couple of days ago. Again, over the weekend, there was a lot of news. Uh, Hamas says that Israel refused to receive two hostages. Israel called it propaganda. There was some follow-up reporting yesterday that reconfirmed this idea that Hamas tried to give two hostages back, and Israel refused. There has been a lot of pushback internally in Israel because for how it is managing the hostage situation. Families are concerned that the bombardments are jeopardizing the lives of hostages, 200 or so hostages that are still in Gaza. So that that is a really mixed bag. But it is worth saying that I, I know that you referenced the, the poll about where people's public sympathies felt, but specifically the poll about whether the U.S. should call for a ceasefire and de-escalation has voters overwhelmingly uh, agreeing that they should. So 30 percent of all likely voters strongly agree, and another 36 percent some would agree. So that's 36 percent who agree overall, 10 percent who don't know, 
and only 25% who either somewhat or strongly disagree that the U.S. should call for a ceasefire. So I think that most people, even if they believe that Israel has a right to defend itself, even if it believe, even if they believe that it could do so disproportionately, even if they think that civilian deaths are warranted and all of these things, at a certain point, they're looking at the numbers here on the balance sheet. They're looking at our military expenditures and the aid that is going to have, to your point, uh, Robbie, be paid to remedy the situation. They're looking at—I checked the number—it's 40 it's percent of all uh, housing in Gaza uh, that has been destroyed. Um, and what the cost of that is going to be. And they're saying, why are we, with our tax dollars, continuing to fund this onslaught on this population, um, especially given it's a population that was so um, underserved, needy, and occupied in, in, the, first, in the first instance. So uh, we'll definitely have more news, more coverage of the ongoing crisis in Gaza. Stick around for more Rising after this. The tide does not appear to be turning in former President Donald Trump's favor after a second co-defendant in the election fraud case in Georgia, Kenneth Cheeseborough, joined Trump loyalist and attorney Sidney Powell in filing a guilty plea. Powell and Cheeseborough took plea deals in exchange for information about the other co-defendants in question, and it begs the question whether others will follow suit and flip on the ex-president. Trump sought to distance himself from Powell, taking to True Social on Sunday, writing, quote, Ms. Powell was not my attorney and never was. In fact, she would have been conflicted. Powell joined the Trump campaign's legal team in 2020, a position she very briefly held. Now, Cheesebro's guilty plea brings prosecutor Fannie Willis and her team closer to rounding out their case. Um, and this is, you know, the problem and the legal jeopardy that Donald Trump finds himself in is that he was one of dozens of co-defendants in the Georgia indictment, but really all prosecutors want is Trump. He's the he's the big kahuna. So they're going to get everybody else to accept plea deals in exchange for testifying against Trump. We know they will do this because this is how this is how the justice system, this is how prosecutors work in all sorts of similar cases and vast criminal conspiracy cases where they, you know, they they threaten um, lower and less connected defendants with, you know, massive jail time to get them to cooperate. So they go after their main target. Their main target here is Donald Trump. You don't have to like that. You don't have to think that's fair. I, I am by describing it. I am not endorsing it, but it is fact. It is a simple fact that Donald Trump is in tremendous legal jeopardy, uh, owing to the way in Georgia specifically they have charged this case. They have been able to leverage. Powell and all the others, they will, there will be, this is not the end of that. This is only the beginning in getting people to flip on Donald Trump, um, which is going to be an absolute disaster for him. And I, you know, wonder if he's talking to whatever attorneys he has now, there was some news that one of them wanted to uh, file to be withdrawn from the case, I believe. But these, um, whether attorneys are, are making him aware of the very tenuous position he's in. Well, you know, some legal commentators observed when the indictment was first filed, the writing was on the wall when you saw that there were 19 co-defendants in this case. The idea that Trump was going to be able to maintain kind of a code of silence and loyalty among 19 people was already kind of incredible, even if you weren't factoring in Trump's own behavior toward former staffers uh, that we've seen play out 
over the course of the last six years or so. How many times have we seen someone who is no longer in Trump's employ characterized as bad and horrible and swampy and it was a bad hiring decision? Trump is not one who has shown a lot of loyalty, frankly, to people who used to be a part of his team, even when they offer the most kind of soft and benign of criticisms of the administration. Uh, and so, you know, this is in some ways is deeply unsurprising. I don't mean to do too much of a you know pop culture tie-in, but I did see Killers of the Flower Moon over the weekend, and those of you who have seen the new Scorsese movie will know that this is how it tends to go down. If you have a kind of broad criminal enterprise where you required a lot of people to be involved in an, an alleged scheme, those are all vulnerability points for you. And unless you can neutralize those by either protecting people or you know, figuring out a way to make it untraceable between you and them, you are, it's going to come back to you. And Trump, again, is also not someone who has been particularly discreet. Um, he tends to court media and say things that are oftentimes inculpatory. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that in the documents case, the, the most gl glowing piece of evidence against him is a tape recording of, of a video of an interview that he gave to a reporter when he thought he was defending himself as someone who was less accelerationist in terms of going to war with Iran, but in fact said on tape, and you can hear the wrestling papers in the background, that he had do uh, confidential documents that he knew were supposed to have been uh, returned to the government. So this is the kind of guy he is, and, and I can't even begin to imagine the kind of exposure that's going to come as more and more of these 19 co-defendants um, go to trial. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. the—, the personality characteristics that make him a very compelling political figure and a, a frankly beloved political figure I mean a polarizing one but a beloved political figure among his his base and among many most Republicans um, does not you know make him it also makes him subject to incredible legal liability because he does say what he thinks even even in that what that town hall he did with CNN again asked about the stolen election claims he just doubles and triples down on them. He, he, he makes new ones, in fact. Um, I mean, look, he, he's, he's running for president again. He's running to be the Republican nominee again. So he can't just, like, shut up, stay quiet, not talk about these things, follow legal advice to stop, um, to stop, uh, to, to stop tweeting and truthing. Or, you know, he's, he's not tweeting. He's just, just truthing, although he's been invited to be back on, uh, on X. He's not going to stop doing any of that because he's still running for president. He still wants to trash talk and bad mouth um and many of the people running against him are running explicitly because of the election claims mike pence is doing that chris christie is doing that to a great extent so i, I think he rightly thinks he can't avoid talking about these things even as he's increasingly ordered to by by the court and uh, and and at great risk for doing so but it's just clear he's gonna he's going to continue on his way and and let justice be done, though the heavens fall. Well, meanwhile, it appears federal prosecutors have set their sights on Australian billionaire Anthony Pratt, who gained access to Trump's inner circle in 2020, per The New York Times. In recordings obtained by 60 Minutes, Pratt appears to admit Trump revealed sensitive information to him and a glimpse of how Trump operates behind closed doors. Let's listen. He's outrageous. He just... Uh says whatever the f he wants and he loves to shock people i hadn't even heard it it hadn't even been on the news yet he said i just bombed iraq today he said i just bombed iraq today and the president of iraq called me up and said you just leveled my city and he said and i said to him okay what are you going to do about it 
That seems to be part and parcel of what <laughs> we were just talking about, Robbie. And it, it should be noted, you alluded to this right before we went to that clip, that Trump has been fined $5,000 for almost immediately violating the gag order uh, not to talk about court staff uh, that we discussed last week. Sure. I mean, the only thing I'll say about this story, which I think has come to the uh, the Australian billionaire, it has, a, I think, a certain fascination for the mainstream media because they want to demonstrate and prove that Trump not only like kept these documents or was you know reckless with some trivial documents, but was like you know leaking important national security stuff to uh, foreign entities or friends and all that. Again, that that might very well be the case. Um, this figure sounds kind of boastful to me. Um, Trump is notoriously has a lack of caution, so I'm I'm perfectly willing to believe. But I, I you know I need to be seen shown more, and I do I do have a a worry and a weariness about um, how the national security apparatus wants to protect itself with respect to Trump. You know, describe Trump. As, as the reckless person with respect to U.S. foreign policy, even as, you know, our generals and our national intelligence experts, they, they, think, they think it's reckless to, you know, not um, send money everywhere and become involved in every conflict across the globe. They think Trump is a uniquely dangerous figure because he, at times, spoke against doing that and also fought them, um, you know, not, not in a success, often in an unsuccessful way and in a confused way and, and not a very one based on his own um, his own deeply held commitments or something, but he was an obstacle and an annoyance to the kind of groupthink that pervades Washington on foreign policy matters. So I'm, I'm always looking for you know the the efforts they will go to to smear him on this front, and I, I'm, I'm smelling a little bit of that here, but I don't know. Well, Donald Trump still holding strong as the GOP front runner. We'll continue to cover that horse race. Stick around. More rising for you right after this. After Congressman Jim Jordan failed to become Speaker of the House after three floor votes last week, nine Republicans have announced their plans to seek the nomination. They include Representatives Tom Emmer, Kevin Hearn, Pete Sessions, Austin Scott, Byron Donalds, Jack Bergman, Mike Johnson, Dan Muser, and Gary Palmer. The Republican conference is expected to meet this evening to hear from a new crop of candidates, and a vote is expected as early as tomorrow, according to The Washington Post. House Republicans are pushing a unity pledge to guarantee a speaker is actually selected this time. This has been spearheaded by Representative Mike Flood. The initiative consists of a two-paragraph promise to vote in favor of whoever wins the House Republican conference's backing in the election scheduled for tomorrow. House GOP members have called the speaker race stalemate embarrassing for the party. And I also saw a lot of frustration from I would say, uh, from MAGA conservatives on social media about the fact that Jordan has been, you know, stripped of being the Republican you know, designated um, person for for speaker candidate. That was a vote that happened behind closed doors. Um, so the the it, it's the view of MAGA conservatives that um, that elected Republicans, the vast majority of them, you know, don't support Trump, don't support the MAGA agenda and are thus, you know, behind closed doors when it's secret, they're happy to to go up against Jordan, the the, the candidate of the MAGA movement at, at, at the minute, even though in, they're too cowardly to do it in public. So um, so that's a, a dynamic I'm seeing playing out. Obviously, we are 
st you know, still learning the, the views of all these nine Republican figures and who they are and where they fit in. Obviously, Byron Donalds is someone who has been closely associated um, with Trump. Uh, who has uh, defended Trump and Trumpism on uh, on TV um, quite a bit, who was put forward uh, possibly as a candidate even during the McCarthy mm -hmm, um, efforts mm -hmm. to gain the speakership. He was at one point put forth as like the alternative um, uh, candidate by the kind of Freedom Caucus um, wing. So I, I think he's someone to watch closely. Yeah, I, he came onto my personal radar during all the speakership kerfuffles in January, and frankly had very good uh, camera presence. He he sold this better than a lot of other people I have seen sell it. And that is part of what this is. The force the vote requires a kind of um, showmanship. You have to keep the public on your side with the argument that you're holding up Congress in their interests, that you're the one that's, let's say, wanting to root out corruption. You're the one that wants basic reforms that are going to nurture the benefit of the American people and to push back against the messaging from the Republican establishment that this is all about um, self-aggrandizement and winning votes back in your district or fundraising and the like. So I was interested to see Byron Donald's name back in the mix here. I do see, pe see people, especially in the liberal press, uh, talking about Tom Immer of Minnesota, who is apparently the highest-ranking Republican in the race. Um, he's endorsed by McCarthy. He does seem in some ways to be an establishment pick and therefore, I think, seen more kindly by uh, Democrats. He is also uh, one of the two of this new slate of candidates that did not uh, vote to overturn the election back in 2020. And so he seems like the kind of adult choice in the room for people on the other side of the aisle. I wonder what you make of Emmer or some of these other candidates that are in the mix. Yeah, I'm, look, I think there's the, the fundamental um, divide on the Republican side has not been bridged. And I, I don't think, frankly, there's any reason to think one of these nine figures can bridge it, right? The, the fundamental problem is still is has still been exposed for us all to see, which is that there are there are deep divisions in the party. There are ideological differences about what what policy issues. There's both ideological differences about you know what what funding um, what we should do with the American tax dollars uh, taxpayers' money, and then there's also some procedural differences. There are insurgent members like Matt Gates, who, you know, who want the freedom to actually legislate without necessarily the speaker's permission and want to be able to hold the speaker accountable if he's not delivering on what Freedom Caucus people think is the agenda that their their voters and supporters actually want. So they want the power to be able to hold that person accountable. They, they don't want this, you know, this, they, they don't want to, uh, to, to put forth a king, you know, to, to christen a new, a new, a new monarch. That's not something Republican, many, many of these Republican members are interested in doing. So we're still in that place. And they, and they have the support of, of, their, of their voters, of a lot of frustrated Trump supporters, um, you know, who speak up on social media and everywhere else. So like we haven't, we haven't resolved that and no one has put forth a, a plan to do so. And, and then on the other side, there are enough, you know, very angry um, kind of you know, goody two shoes rules following Republican members who are who, who don't want to reward uh, Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and Freedom Caucus people for what they've done, and so are, are going to uh, to thwart that ascendancy as well. Which you know that is absolutely their right. So nothing fundamentally has changed. I think we could we could we could not have a speaker for a while, frankly. Yeah, I, I do think that some folks 
anticipated and perhaps even hoped that the uh, war in Israel, Gaza, would change the dynamic somewhat and put pressure on these Freedom Caucus holdouts to go ahead and get the government going again so that it could approve these enormous aid, aid packages that Biden wants to push through. There's a $105 billion national security package that's been requested, but so far it doesn't seem like that uh, the presumption that there was going to be a knee-jerk um, desire to defend, to, to fund the defense, I should say specifically, uh, of Israel is enough to get the Freedom Caucus members to bend the proverbial knee here, especially since there's been this choice to link the Israel and um, uh, Ukraine aid together. If anything, part of what motivated this break in the, in the Republican Party in the first instance is the difference of opinion about what appears increasingly to be a blank, a blank check to Ukraine. And so I, I, I don't—I agree with you. I don't see this resolving um, unless the fundamental concerns that Matt Gates is talking about are addressed. And I do think it's really interesting how much the mainstream media neglects talking specifically about the very issues that Matt Gates have, has put forward as what his, what his sticking points are, what he's actually trying to bargain around. If you think that he is doing this to showboat and be self-aggrandizing, then pinning him on what his demands are helps you to make that case. If the demands shift when met, then you can make the case that he's moving the goalpost and that he doesn't really mean what he says. But if they don't shift, and you, it is your obligation then to start to meet them or to make the case to the American public that his demands are not things that they should have their government held up to satisfy. But the disinterest in actually talking about the specifics, to me, does reflect that there's a lot in what Matt Gates is arguing for that, frankly, is quite appealing to the American public. It will reflect poorly on the establishment members of Congress to not meet those very demands. Yeah, it was a fantasy, a delusion, frankly, of mainstream commentators, thinkers, even some within the Republican commentariat that what's happening in the Middle East meant that, oh, well, now we have to just quickly approve a speaker. We have to, you know, set aside our differences to do something for what? Well, those are always the worst policies come out of that anyway, when we uh, when we rush the process because there's some exterior crisis that, you know, necessitates setting setting our differences aside. No, these differences need to be worked out. They, they're not, nothing else is going to take precedence. I'm sorry. It was, it, it was, it was wishful thinking probably on the part of um, you know a lot of people who, who do want to approve tons more aid to both Ukraine and to Israel. There are deep divisions on the Republican side about doing both of those things. Certainly there are many Republicans who, who do want to support um, Israel with more than just rhetoric, with actual money, and not support Ukraine. I think there are probably some uh, who are not spoken uh, for as much, who really don't see the U.S., d don't want the U.S. to get more involved in either conflict. But uh, but anyway, we're not like that. That debate is going to happen. It's it's happening, you know, vis-a-vis -vis this fight for the speakership. That's just that's not being set aside. Like people have to be realistic. You know, we live in political actors are are <laughs> trying trying to are, are engaged in a battle to to um, to empower their side or the other side or their faction or, you know, get what they're trying to do. Like if. If a Supreme Court justice just died in this, in the reality we live in now, and the Senate and the president are controlled by a different party, the reality is we will have eight Supreme Court justices until that 
situation is over. Like that's that's reality. That's just how it's going to be. Similarly, it's going to be that there's no speaker until um, Republicans resolve some of this different the, their differences. They decide that they're both getting both sides are satisfied that they're getting something that they want. I think on the kind of more mainstream side, that's going to be coming up with a candidate who they don't feel they are rewarding for for the kind of the, for theatrics or something like that. That seems for some reason to be important to the more mainstream Republican side. And on the insurgent side, on the Freedom Caucus side, it's going to mean um, operating under different rules that actually allow legislators to bring forward their own ideas and to have some independence and to be able to continue to hold the speaker accountable if um, if he's perceived to have betrayed their agenda. So until until a compromise on on those points is met, I don't see any of this changing. Yeah, well, the other factor at play here is the temporary government funding runs out on November 17th. We'll see if that causes any more uh, players to come to the negotiating table. Stick around. We'll have more rising for you right after this. More free speech suppression? Well, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has reportedly approved regulations that would allow the temporary shutdown of foreign news channels on the grounds of national security, as the country's communications minister, Shlomo Kari, is seeking to shut down Al Jazeera's, Al Jazeera's excuse me, bureau. Writer on Substack, Caitlin Johnstone, wrote on X, why is Israel censoring news reporting about its actions? Is it because it's doing good things and telling the truth about its activities? Meanwhile, climate activist Greta Thunberg posted on X on Friday, today we strike in solidarity with Palestine and Gaza. The world needs to speak up and call for an immediate ceasefire, justice and freedom for Palestinians and all civilians affected. An Israel Defense uh, Forces spokesperson said that whoever identifies with Greta in any way in the future, in my view, is a terror uh, supporter. Um, Robbie, we're in a zone where a teenage climate activist saying that she wants to have a ceasefire gets you called a terrorist supporter by uh, IDF spokespeople. Has something ju jumped the shark here in the messaging that's coming out of Israel in the wake of the uh, October 7th crisis? Did you see the aspect of this involving the stuffed octopus, I did. the stuffed animal octopus? Want to fill was, in the audience uh, in, in case they missed that gym over the weekend? Sure. So in the photo, she had a, an octopus stuffed animal that I, I guess there were claims that that could be interpreted as anti-Semitic. I have no idea if that's true or not, that I have no knowledge that speaks to that. Uh, Greta responded that she apologized and and, and I think, re yeah, redid the photo. But Cropped was that it, I think, yeah. Left out. And she said it was to help with her autism, um, but she was sorry for the anti-Semitism. Yeah, so was, it certainly uh, is. I mean, I, I don't fault anybody for not being super aware of it, because I, I don't think it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a trope that is used very widely today. But the octopus, specifically a blue octopus with its tentacles wrapped around the earth is an anti-Semitic symbol you can see in lots of cartoons from an earlier era. But the stuffed toy that Greta Thunberg had is a very common toy that's used in like the autism community. I've seen it all over the place on TikTok and the like. And the point of the toy is 
you can turn it inside out and it changes color and has a happy face, or you turn it the other way and it has a frowny face. You can see the original photo here on the screen now and with the octopus on her shoulder. And Greta Thunberg, I think, is someone who's openly talked about um, being on the spectrum. And these toys are, are supposed to help people who have a hard time explaining their emotions or letting people know how they feel. Um, have like an external representation of their internal state. So it did feel to be a kind of a very bad faith reading. And in fact, people on the internet quickly found an image of uh, Mike Pence talking at a, an event with a, a very sad event with only a handful of people at it, but with a, with a shelf full of um, similar toys right behind him. So it does seem like a nothing burger, but the escalation in rhetoric um, from, the, well, it, from Israel seems to be notable. Go ahead. It, it, it reminded me, actually, of uh, what, what I think are, are almost always bad faith efforts by mainstream and liberal people to um, tar contrarian or conservative um, people as being anti-Semitic by, you know, the, the, oh, look, isn't that the OK sign? Oh, look, isn't that tattoo uh, uh, the, the Nazi cross? No, it's a, it actually isn't. Um, if you remember that whole uh, news cycle where that uh, supposed this yeah, woman who was a supposed Talia. expert, mm -hmm. Talia something or other, um, Lavin, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, got it. Got that wrong. Um, all the uh, well, and if you remember the uh, uh, Gina Carano, who was um, who was a actress who was on um, the Mandalorian, the Star Wars, as she's yeah. now I think mostly doing stuff for the Daily Wire. You know, she had shared that um, one of those, you know, the elites taking over kind of images that that is is anti-semitic like if you if you're very knowledgeable about again if you have expertise on anti-semitic tropes you would have recognized this as having anti-semitic um undertones but um probably no normal person would have so i think there have been a lot of efforts that you often targeted actually at conservatives to um to ta to you know make them sound anti-semitic this this was very similar to that um the the ban the, the bigger deal though obviously is the banning of uh media outlets um by the israeli government you know this is something that that um that our you know close u.s ally ally and defender of western liberalism uh Volodymyr Zelensky did as well in Ukraine with the the banning of opposition media, opposition political parties, um, and, and yet we are trying to say the U.S. has been trying to say that it you know it is important for um, for Western U.S. aligned liberal values to win the day in conflicts like the Ukraine Russia conflict, even as our allies violate the the free speech norms that we consider. Um, totally um, sacred in this country. So obviously, I think it's you know it's terrible just on, just on its face. It's a bad thing to do, um, no matter how you know desperate the 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 military or the war situation is. You, you know you don't suspend civil liberties because there's a crisis. You shouldn't you should cherish them and hold on to them dearly, even if there is a crisis. But it also speaks to like what are we even doing here? Um, I think. Yeah, I mean, it US. gets. It gets even worse. It's, it's difficult to frankly cover all of the abridgments of free speech that have been um, uh, pursued by either the Israeli government or its uh, proxies, uh, not I shouldn't say its proxies, but people who are sympathetic to its um, kind of political interests right now. Uh, it, both within Israel, where there have been a lot of domestic people, uh, domestic uh, protests that have been suppressed, and in other countries around the world, 
Instagram is now uh, apologizing for its role in some of this censorship. This is an interesting story. Uh, so uh, it, what has happened apparently is that the Instagram was adding the word terrorist to some users' bios in a what's been called a translation error. One user had written in his bio that he was Palestinian, and it was followed by a Palestinian flag and the word alhamdulillah, which in Arabic translates to praise be to God. However, when clicking see translation, viewers were giving an English translation reading, praise be to God, Palestinian terrorists are fighting for their freedom. Hmm. Hmm. Well, this user said in his post he was not Palestinian himself, but had tested the error out after being told about it uh, from a friend who is Palestinian. Um, yeah, I, I obviously that was wrong. I, I don't. I mean, I I don't know. It's it's uh, maybe it, there was you know there was some um, person at the company at Meta who thought it would be funny to do that or is a very anti-Palestinian his views or something. Um, obviously, I, I don't think that was like a deliberate policy on Meta's part, frankly. But um, I, I I can't really guess what went wrong there. It sounds like human error, but. Perhaps it wasn't, I guess, if we're being maximally charitable, but probably someone did that. Yeah, well, someone obviously did it. The, que the question is why it is that there seems to be this trend. Um, we covered last night, uh, last week, rather, some stories about um, Palestinian journalists who allegedly had been pulled from their hosting spots at MSNBC, Ali Velshi, uh, Mehdi Hassan, and the like. There was a story about uh, Palestinians or Arab Americans in the newsroom who tried to articulate any kind of questioning about whether or not there should be a ceasefire and the like, who were criticized roundly for it. There was a story about a prominent agent uh, at CAA uh, who was, uh, it seems, pressured to resign for making some pretty uh, benign statements on uh, the internet. I'll pull up that story in a, while, in a, in a second after we um, continue uh, this read. But it is notable that pro-Palestinian pro uh, protesters' speech is facing crackdown in Europe as well following recent demonstrations. And journalist Glenn Greenwald tweeted, it takes a deeply authoritarian mindset to demand this. Protests aligned with the war policies of the U.K. government and this uh, pundit who was tweeting, i.e., pro-Israel protests are legal and permitted. Protests with dissident, uh, dissident uh, uh, from their view, pro-Palestinian protests should be legally banned. That does seem to be the trend that's emerging here, no? Yeah, um, it's uh, it's very troublesome. We've had uh, Michael Schellenberger on a couple times, and, and Glenn Greenwald himself to you know document what's going on in uh, Europe, where there are unfortunately not the robust protections of the First Amendment don't exist. Um, we we find it uh, disturbing when it happens, but it does happen. The UK government, the German government, the French government um, do crack down on free speech and are are absolutely doing that. Um, in this case, and uh, yeah, again, it makes me very—it makes me thankful that we do have the First Amendment in the U.S., even if it isn't a, a perfect shield. And you know, government actors sometimes find ways to to violate it. But um, yeah, it's it's very worrisome. I mean, they're they're cracking down on dissent. They're um, they're trying to eliminate contrary perspectives. Um, and you know, if you thought this was a problem during COVID or during any other, you know, major kind of political issue that's come up in, in the last few years or, or you know, uh, the, the same issue going back to the war on terror, the immediate post 9-11 um, landscape where actually, d despite us having the First Amendment, the U.S. 
you know, speedily approved the Patriot Act that uh, flagrant, flagrantly violates and continues to this day to uh, violate uh, people's um, free speech rights, due process rights, their rights to privacy, um, their rights to, to travel unhampered by government bureaucrats filling you up all the time. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really bad. And um, I, I, unfortunately, I bet we're only beginning to see the, um, all the kind of bad um, policies coming into fruition. In yeah, the, and the soft, I, I totally agree that the government pressure is the most significant here, uh, but it is also worth knowing there's a lot of uh, group pressure. We talked at length about the, um, the Harvard students uh, that are, were being pressured by a truck with a screen on the back with their names on him. You had professors uh, from Berkeley, I believe, a professor writing into the Wall Street Journal saying, do not hire my law students because they are anti-Semitic. Um, and the story that I was referencing earlier was of the CAA agent, her name is Maha Dakil. She resigned from the board after what was described in Variety as controversial media posts. The media pro post uh, in question was, you're currently learning who supports genocide. That's the line for me. What's more heartbreaking than witnessing genocide? Now. I think a lot of us have, and a lot of um, international humanitarian organizations have described the ongoing, um, you know, 5,000 people, 1,700 uh, kids that have been killed in Gaza, uh, and the choice to evacuate the top half of the Gaza Strip as something that is akin to ethnic cleansing, forced migration, genocide. These are terms that are being widely used in very professional environments. And the idea that someone might be forced to resign from their job because in their personal capacity, they tweeted out frustration, anger about an ongoing humanitarian crisis is something I think that anybody who has interest in, in free speech in the United States of America should keep their eye on. Yeah, I obviously, I think, you know, based on the conversations you and I are having, I think the best way to deal with um, these issues which people disagree on passionately is to just let them actually express their views and to disagree and to you know try to find common ground. But obviously, if someone is saying something about this conflict that you disagree with, you, sh you have every right to express that. But I, I do think, like you, I think it's unhealthy for society to have everyone being in the position of having to you know, lose their employment or their or their status as a student or something based on expressing um, ideas that are controversial for some, you know, obviously you don't, you don't have a right to that job or that position, or, uh, you know, if you're a Harvard student, you don't, you, you do actually, you have some hard uh, free speech protections in your right as a student based on your like contractual arrangement with Harvard university, which they pay money to attend. They don't have a right, to, you know, to a future job with a law firm or anything else, but it's not a, I don't think it's a healthy thing. And Vivek Ramaswamy, I think expressed this very well, uh, one of the Republican um, candidates who's been kind of um, a, a dissenter a little bit on some of these topics in saying that it's it's just, it's just, it's not healthy to go down this road. It is clearly an embrace of cancel culture to, um, to treat people like this over disagreements. And, you know, you should, you should want to persuade, not punish uh, where, wherever possible. Yeah, I mean, one last kind of glaring one that got a lot of attention over the weekend. I do think some of the statements that are coming specifically out of um, Israel's official Twitter page are, are rather remarkable. The United Nations UN Geneva account um, tweeted uh, forwards, even war has rules. Um, speaking to some of the war crimes that we've described as happening in Gaza right now. And the Israel account quote tweeted that and wrote, even Israelis deserve to live. 
Now, I don't think that's in dispute, but the choice to, to respond to an articulation of the Geneva Conventions, which is to say you can conduct a war, but you have to follow some basic humanitarian rules, the idea that Israel's official account will respond to that, saying, well, there's apparently some conflict in, between Israel having the right to defend itself and respecting the Geneva Convention. That's a little bit of a weird tell on behalf of the Israeli government. And I don't know what's going on with this Twitter page, if it's off on a lark, um, but this kind of repeated trend is also drawing a lot of attention, I think, reflecting some of what Glenn Greenwald described as uh, authoritarian um, leanings here. So we'll continue to cover all of these free speech developments as they emerge. Please do stick around for more Rising after this. The New York Times has issued a formal correction to its coverage of an explosion at a Gaza hospital last week, writing, quote, given the sensitive nature of the news during a widening conflict, Times editors should have taken more care with the initial presentation and been more explicit about what information could actually be verified. Former CNN media analyst Brian Stelter called the Times and other mainstream media's misreporting on the explosions atrocious during an appearance on News Nation. Let's watch. You know, sometimes, Dan, you're out there criticizing the media, and I want to defend the media, but there is no defense here. This was an atrocious uh, series of mistakes by many different major newsrooms all around the same time on Tuesday. And unfortunately, I don't think there's been enough follow-up or accountability to make sure it doesn't happen again. I've noticed oftentimes in breaking news stories, breaking news scenarios, when information is lowest, interest is highest. And by the time we actually know the facts, people move on. Well, this was one of those cases, but it was even worse because when the stakes are highest, it seems the standards were the lowest and it should be the opposite. The standards should be the highest when the stakes are as high as they are right now. What are you the University of London's Forensic Archives team and veteran war crimes investigator are suggesting not definitively yet that the Gaza hospital attack was, quote, more consistent with the impact marks from an artillery shell fired by the Israelis than by Palestinians. The Palestinian administration has told the international community they believe an international investigation into the hospital blast would be inappropriate, prompting one ex-user to ask, why would the U.S. oppose such an investigation if it believes Israel didn't do it? So, yeah, Robbie, as we've discussed, there have been a lot of um, kind of counter narratives and explanations that have been offered, including by uh, Channel 4 News that did an investigative look at this and came to some different conclusions, none conclusive yet. And I do think that it's worth making some assessments adjustments, criticisms of how the media handled the hospital bombing last week. But as I said last week, I think that jumping to conclusions in the other direction based on Israel's internal analysis and the U.S.'s choice to basically co-sign that analysis um, is also sort of premature. Well, I mean, the, the U.S. co-signed Israel's analysis after doing its own investigation, and you should never take you know, you should never just intrinsically believe what our government had to say, but um, news outlets also have done their own investigations now. And we can see, I mean, we can see on social media um, video footage and long explanations by independent people that I, I think moves the, the 
evidence in in favor of it being uh, not of Israeli origin. Which um, one? Which which can... news evidence? Because what I saw was the lengthy report by Channel Four, which in fact militated in the opposite direction. Again, I'm not coming to any conclusions, but I haven't I mean, it seen anything like you that. Are. I, the Wall Street Journal did some terrific reporting what on this. What conclusion am I, I coming to? What's that? What we said it sounds like I am coming to a conclusion. What conclusion does it sound like it I'm coming like to? Sounds like you're just trying to discredit any of the uh, investigations or intelligence emerges that says it is not of Israel. No, I, I'm not trying to discredit I, anything. I'm pointing out that Israel did its investigation, America did its investigation, Channel Four did its investigation. Those cut in different directions, and I agree with people, frankly, that are asking why and calling for. Um, an independent UN investigation, why has that been shut down by the West and, and its allies? And I also agree with people like uh, Palestinian scholar Norman Finkelstein, who asked on X over the weekend, um, why is it so difficult to um, resolve this? He says, one, Gaza is a tiny place. U.S. intelligence was intensively monitoring the area. Why doesn't the U.S. simply publish its satellite imagery? It does feel like this has some echoes of the Nord Stream bombing, where there wasn't a lot of access that was given to independent outside people. They voted down the U.N. resolution to have an independent U.N. investigation. And I think that in and of itself does start to raise some questions. <laughs> I mean, I, again, I've seen the video footage of the explosion hitting the hospital as the rockets are being fired by uh, Palestinian uh, jihad, that group. The Wall Street Journal's report on this is Wait, very what, not what totally have you definitive. Seen? This is a news, let me, let me, this is a news outlet. I, I, so I, I put a lot of credibility in what the Wall Street Journal says. They have a history of getting some things right that other um, news outlets missed. The, the Wall Street Journal famously is the outlet that has um, done very good reporting on conclusions that the, that, that we have reached about um, the lab leak being the origin of COVID-19 rather than the uh, the wet market. They backed up um, Michael Schellenberger's reporting on the uh, early uh, sick people at, at the Wuhan lab. And again, I've, I've seen the videos for myself. And, and we know, and there's no what? disputing <laughs> that I know, hold on, there's no disputing that the casualty estimate offered by the Palestinian figures, what is what they said it was is, was 10 times higher than what we know it, it, it actually is. So it's so it's which sources have offered information that's been totally discredited and which have proposed an explanation that's consistent with the evidence that emerged on social media and the videos we can see. Again, I'm happy to have an inv so investigation take place that's independent or UN guided or whatever. But at some point, I think I think people need to take the L on this one. Um, Robbie, it, it, I, think it that's, is, I think that's really premature. So for one, at, over the weekend, I saw an updated casual report that still put the number at 471 deaths, which is very close to the 500 estimate. So I'm not—I'm really not sure what you mean about the 10 times casualty number. And again, I'm not coming to any conclusions. I'm trying to be very clear about that. But I also don't think you can ignore what has now been a widely discredited audio video put out by the Israeli government that purported to be to. Uh, members of the terrorist organization talking about how they did the bomb, which has been discredited by Arabic-speaking Arabic linguists as like an Al Al Abbott and Costello sort of a routine that doesn't pass the smell test. The m remarks uh, made online by various Israeli officials uh, that seem to immediately cl take claim for the uh, bombing, saying it was justified because Hamas was hiding there, and then retracting that and saying it was, in fact, uh, Hamas or the Islamic Jihad group that did it. And so it just—it seems to me to be 
a lot of people saying, I looked at a video and came to this conclusion and that conclusion. I don't think any of us, neither you or I are forensic experts. So to say that you saw a video and you concluded that it must have been one group or another does still seem to me to be very Most premature. Most of the forensic experts have looked at this and this is what they've concluded. That's I'm not summarizing true. Well, that's, that's not true. The majority of forensic experts are saying. How, how many, what is the number of forensic evidence, uh, forensic experts that you're putting on one side of the uh, uh, till here versus on the other side? The ones the consulted by by the Israeli government, the U.S. government, and and news uh, media groups all say it is more likely to have been a Palestinian jihad, and then well, also the analysis I well, see from amateurs on social media all points in that that's way. Not true, it's just Robbie. it's just um, uh, a, a few uh, uh, Palestinian or indeed even Hamas sympathetic people saying otherwise. So so Channel Four News is now a Hamas sympathetic organization. You pick, again, you can, you can pick. 99 people say, well, here's what the evidence says, and you can pick the one that says, fine, you can do that, but it's, but it's Robbie, clear that it's pretty it, it likely does, at this point we know what happened. It does seem like it's odd to say that an independent news organization is Hamas sympathetic, but not pointing out that Israel is obviously Israel sympathetic, and that that raises some questions about the integrity of their analysis, especially given that they lied repeatedly about the IDF, Israel killing um, American Palestinian journalist uh, Shireen Abdul Abu Akleh just uh, a year or so ago. The New York I mean, Times, the Washington Post, and other mainstream outlets took the Palestinian uh, authorities' uh, word for this from the get go, and now they've had to apologize humiliatingly because that information was very likely to have been incorrect. I, I, I don't think that's the case. Moreover, I think Brian Stelter's um, analysis is, is kind of is kind of interesting because, if anything, the New York Times initial headlines were um, really did actually say Palestinian group says. So when they reported on the hospital bombing and described it as having been done by IDF, they said Palestinian groups say. So the caveat, frankly, was in there that they were relying on the intel of one group. And then as the as the headline began to change, well, it became Israel says this. And so while both headlines ended up getting pushback from some pro-Palestinian uh, factions of the internet for caveating it too hard, I think they actually did throw that pitch down the middle and at least report on who whose intelligence they were running, as opposed to just saying it as truth. So I, I don't know that they should deserve as much criticism for this story as Brian Stelter is uh, behaving as they did. It is interesting that when the uh, 40 beheaded baby lies circulated around the world up to the level of the president who said it, the president didn't even personally apologize. His people put out a statement saying that he had not, in fact, seen images of 40 beheaded babies, and that lie did not get any of the same scrutiny. And, and I'm sorry? It, it is, that's an exaggeration. We've now seen there are photos of of headless babies, of blown apart babies. Uh, well, if that's multiple... the standard, if you're allowed to almost get a story right, Robbie, Israel has bombed a number of hospitals. And while everyone was talking about who bombed, this, almost, it, it, bombed this particular hospital, Israel did, in fact, bomb an Orthodox church that ultimately ended up in the deaths of two of a former Congress member's family members. They've now shown um, forensic evidence of, of mother and child or father and child, parent and child, um, tied together, burned to death, their, their, their insides mixed together, the remains mixed together. I mean, 
bar absolutely barbaric. I'm, I'm, wait a minute, Robbie. Your argument is now that it's fine to lie and fabricate a story about 40 beheaded babies being found at a specific location. That was a specific story. Joe, there was Biden, a location. Joe Biden did not say 40 beheaded babies. He said he saw photos of beheaded babies, and those photos do exist. So wait, you're, wait, wait, wait. No, Robbie, his own people, his own administration put out a statement denying that he had seen those photos. So now you're now you're making you're covering for Biden in a way that Biden is even trying to cover for himself. His own administration put out a statement saying that Biden had not personally looked at any photographs. Period. Look at so the, why are you all, now trying them. to run They're cover available for this? on Twitter. You can see them. Photos that is not of the story, Robbie. Babies. That, that is, do you think it is appropriate for the president of the United States to represent that he had corroborated a widely circulating story about 40 beheaded babies because he had personally seen pictures of them? He does not even need he, to lay down what a the the graphic state of the victims remains. You don't have to play it down, Robbie. You should absolutely. You should absolutely talk about the real stories that happened. But the real tragedies don't allow you to lie and fabricate fake tragedies. You keep so, saying you keep saying lie. Yes, the, I do. There are, met, there are tons of bodies of dead babies in various states, including headless. So, so it's I, a lie. I, I'm, I'm sorry, it, but I, I don't under, I, I don't feel like we need to keep doing this because Biden already admitted that he lied. Biden's administration already came out and said this, so I don't really I don't have to argue with you. Biden's already made this concession. No but I do did think the Biden it's, administration say the words "we lied." No, it said that Biden did not, in fact, see what he just said he saw. So you can characterize that in any way that you want. But Biden, immediately after he no, came I off of the stage, said, they released I, I, a statement. They did, again, the 40 number is maybe an exaggeration or maybe not. Why? But there are remains in those. Robbie, it, this is such a weird, just talk about the things that did happen. Just like I plan to talk about the many um, medical officials and hospitals that the IDF has bombed, not just in the context of this conflict, but over the course of the years. And also about the Orthodox Christian church that it bombed over the weekend that, uh, a few days ago, that got almost no coverage where thousands of people were sheltering and which is a church of, of this extreme historical and religious significance. So if the if the argument is that there has been violent atrocities committed against uh, Israelis, talk about that. That's absolutely true. And it is also completely true that You're the IDF has bombed all these civilian targets. That is absolutely true. I'm sorry? Well, you keep downplaying and denying it. I, I'm not. I'm talking about a specific instance that, for some reason, it, it seems to me, fr frankly, kind of perverse and cruel to be harping on an imaginary story when there's such a volume of real tragedy that people could be talking about. But this is a media criticism segment, and where the media gets stuff wrong, I think it's incumbent on us to talk about where the media gets stuff wrong. Well, I, I didn't bring it up. You did, but it's it's not imaginary. There are photos of blown apart babies, and I don't see the need to really um, pick at it past that. But there are also a lot of uh, Palestinian dead as well. I have not been, I'm not casting aspersions on that. I think it's awful. Um, I think, um, I, I hope more Americans hear from what former Representative Amash had to say about um, his family members and what happened to them so that there can be uh, pressure for peace. We agree on that. And we agree on the necessity of, you know, getting the facts right and reporting them and trying to um, explain to our audience, you know, what the state of the, of the evidence suggests without a lot of certainty, because we could be we could be wrong and new evidence could emerge, but I, I, I think the bulk of the evidence in, in the hospital case 
points to Palestinian wrongdoing, and I think there plenty of evidence has it's, emerged. It points to Islamic Jihad wrongdoing. Right. Right. right, not the Palestinian and people. The, and I, I appreciate you bringing up those Palestinian children's deaths, because it is, it is the case that there have been more Palestinian children killed in this tragedy than all Israelis killed, period. Now the number is 1,700 Palestinian kids um, dead after the horrific events of October 7th, in which uh, 1,300, or maybe up to about 1,400 now, Israelis were, um, uh, were killed. So it, it is important to keep that in mind. I appreciate you bringing that up, Robbie. All right, stick around. This is, this is horrible stuff, but we have more rising for you right after this. Comedian Dave Chappelle was reportedly booed and jeered after he derided Israeli airstrikes as war crimes and criticized the suppression of pro-Palestinian speech during a set at TD Garden in Boston last week. The Wall Street Journal first reported that fans walked out and an audience member yelled at Chappelle to shut up after he said he didn't believe open supporters of Palestine should lose their jobs, as has been reported widely. In turn, Chappelle criticized Israel's decision to cut off food, water, electricity and supplies to Gaza and accused the IDF of committing war crimes against civilians. Now, some audience members reportedly later posted online that Chappelle's comments made them feel unsafe. Robbie, are you surprised by this? Dave Chappelle has been defended really broadly um, by folks I think that are independent or right-leaning for being a truth teller who's like against cancellation. Is this is this the issue that ultimately might get him canceled full out? Well, I probably not. I, I think he's you know weathered past storms pretty well. I, it points to a, though you're right. It points to a hypocrisy I think among people who are against cancel culture and want to you know, defend Dave Chappelle's right to be provocative and edgy and to um, challenge prevailing norms, uh, even if it risks saying something um, controversial or uncomfortable or frankly, even wrong. Um, the right leaning, maybe contrarian people have been you know, pro Chappelle for him doing that. This is just another example of him, of him doing that very thing, perhaps in a way that this time offends them. But, you know, if you think that Chappelle shouldn't be canceled or fired or unpersoned from polite society for mocking um, the, the views of, of progressive liberals around gender and sexuality and that kind of thing, then you ought to think he should not be canceled for having somewhat dissenting or dissident views on the Israel-Palestine conflict or on, remember when he sort of defend, I mean, in a funny way, right? We, we give comedians greater license to to offend and provoke what, you know, he did a set sort of defending Kanye West um, in Kanye West's anti-Semitism uh, scandal. Again, this is the, I, I, most people I think believe it's proper to give comedians license to do that, and that when uh, when progressives or liberals or mainstream media cancel comedians for having said something that offends uh, progressives, we laugh at that and say that's bad. So it should be absolutely the you know the same way when the shoe's on the other foot. I mean, it is interesting given how controversial so many of Chappelle's sets are, and that he attracts that audience, obviously, of people who see themselves at least as very being less um, sensitive. To have people at his audience reacting that way, I think, is somewhat surprising. I first saw this story actually not covered in the mainstream press, but in a um, DM that was circulating by some um, 
kind of celebrity uh, types uh, who have uh, who are pro-Palestine. And it gives a little bit more detail. This is from someone at the event as well. Um, they said they saw—I saw Dave Chappelle last night at Boston TD uh, Garden. It was sold out, so I would say 22,000 people were there. Three-quarters of the way into the show, he said, I want to address what's going on in Palestine and Israel. He specifically said Palestine and said it before Israel. He said what happened on October 7th wasn't right, but also what's going on isn't right and not just. You can't kill innocent civilians like that, and the whole world sits silently and watches. Then someone shouted at him from the crowd, shut the F up, Dave. He then went nuts and yelled back, no, you shut the F up and you don't take tens of billions from my country to go kill innocent women and children and come tell me to shut the F up. He said, don't come begging for money from my country and then go drop bombs on children and cut off innocent people, water and electricity. You have the audacity to pay, come see me and then tell me to shut the F up. No, you shut the F up. The crowd then started clapping and cheering for him and saying, yes, Dave, in chance of free Palestine. And then he said, you're damn right, free Palestine. So it, it, the way that was reported initially, you know, in the what was it, the Wall Street Journal, did seem to suggest that he was being heckled and booed at this concert. This gives us a different picture of a, a minority heckling and booing and the rest of the crowd supporting him, which does seem to reflect both the huge protests, pro-Palestinian protests we saw the weekend, 100,000 protesters estimated in London, 100,000. Um, and also the polls that we've discussed where uh, majorities of Americans support a ceasefire. You know, I think it's interesting, actually, you reading what Chappelle said there, he actually leaned into um, the, the, the paying for it, the mm -hmm. funding of it. He brought up a complaint that, honestly, I think a lot of conservatives have as well. Very few of their candidates are speaking to that concern, with the exception right now of Vivek Ramaswamy, that... You know, we are. Are we obligated to to fund this? I mean, I mean, I don't want anyone to be funding things they don't agree with. Frankly, I, you know, you know how I feel about government funding in general. But uh, but these are these are funds we are donating. We're very generous, the American taxpayers, to other countries. And then you're going to say that we should have no that that we don't deserve say over how it's spent. I don't think that's a view that uh, that American conservatives, independents. Um, you know, libertarians um, think that that makes any sense. So I, I am hoping, especially particularly around the funding question, because there is a lot more disagreement over the, when you, you know, try to bring in the moral stakes of this conflict and the sympathy and what should actually literally be done to resolve the situation between Israel and Palestine. I don't know that there's going to be a lot, a tremendous amount of agreement um, between people on other sides of the political aisle. But could there be, and is there actually, political uh, agreement on what the U.S.'s role should be here and our funding role? And uh, I, I'm hoping that's a, a conversation that could actually be had and that people who aspire to be leaders in both the Republican and the Democratic Party or in just those political traditions talk um, more about that because I bet they'll find you know, more common agreement between uh, between people who disagree and, be, you know, your, the Chappelles of the world giving voice to that criticism, really, specifically. Sure. I mean, it's, it is also true that he gave voice to the humanitarian criticism. This is all secondhand, obviously. We don't have video from the show. Uh, but he did say it's not—you can't just kill innocent civilians like that and the whole world sits silently and watches. That was a significant um, part of his argument, it seems. And while we don't have video uh, of— 
what happened at this most recent show. There is some indication from other routines that he's done in the past, some clips that have been circulating around from his um, from one of his specials that show that he has for a long time felt sympathy with the plight of Palestinian peoples as occupied. He tells a joke, we're not able to play it here today, but he tells a joke uh, where the setup is an alien race that was on Earth a long time ago leaves Earth um, to, you know, be because it was no longer hospitable for them here or whatever. They come back to Earth uh, uh, looking for safe harbor at their original land and find that we're all here and they're like, you guys have got to go. And there's like a war that breaks up between us and the aliens. What do I call that movie? He calls it Space Jews. That's the punchline. So an obvious analogy for how he is framing the plight of Palestinians as an occupied people perhaps means it shouldn't be surprising that he took this political approach and also that he seems to have a an interest or some kind of identity of interest with the plight uh, of a people who have been forced off of off of their lands. But I'm sure. Can you, this can will, you just go can ahead. You imagine going? Sorry, can you imagine going to uh, Chappelle's stand-up and having the reaction like, "Oh, that's offensive. You shouldn't say that. I don't want to hear that. I'm like, just stay home. Don't go. What are you doing? You, yeah, you, you, the, the guts of really the person to try to get into it with Chappelle. I would not draw myself attracting to myself with any comedian that does crowd work, but especially Dave Chappelle. So um, this will probably not be the last of this. Dave Chappelle is a very outspoken uh, person. So uh, stick around. We'll have more Rising for you after this.